Hey friends, welcome to another episode of the Macrovisor podcast. We've got a lot to talk about as we've been on break for a little while, and we'd love to dive right in. But before we do, I'd love to welcome my wonderful co-host, Aisha. Aisha, how are you doing today? Hey, ma'am. It's great to be back recording this podcast. Well, to be fair, it's a bit of a sad day today, isn't it? We just lost the great Charlie Munger. And since morning, you know, I woke up, I saw the news, and um, I don't know, I've had mixed feelings about the whole situation because, as you know, I admired him very much. And for sure, he's had a life well lived. But at the same time, we will miss him. We will miss him dearly, particularly at those Berkshire Hathaway events. You know, I'd always be waiting for when he'd say something funny or when he'd say something, you know, snarky and just shut everyone else up. So, yes, uh, sad day for us in the investment investment community. And um, But let's take this moment to celebrate his life more than anything else because he's given us so much. He really has, and he helped Warren Buffett build Berkshire into the juggernaut it is. They worked together for over four decades And he died at the age of 99, where he actually attended the last Berkshire meeting, as you talked about in today's Breakfast Bites, which it's amazing. I mean, here's a guy who's almost 100 years old, and he was there for five and a half hours interacting, presenting, being funny, you know, sharing insights. This man, like you said, probably worked every single day up till the end and that work ethic is commendable what he shared with the world is irreplaceable the legacy he left he's left behind really does leave a ripple effect throughout the entire investing community and i mourn his loss when the news came out last night first you know i'm seeing it trending and i'm like oh this is probably just another meme you know because on twitter you see famous people's trending and your your heart stops for a minute you're like oh god they died and then you realize no so my initial reaction was the opposite I'm like oh it's just another you know moment of appreciation for good old Charlie and then I read it and I'm like oh no oh no and you know it really did hit me hard because he's one of the people in finance who I really respect who really is one of these people that built so much from so little and has shared so much along the way so I I think that uh, our dearly departed Charlie Munger is someone who we should all kind of look back on learn more about his legacy, the insights and the the ideas that he had to teach us all because what a what an incredible man and what an influential person in the world of finance that we've just lost. Absolutely. And you know, just a few interesting things about him. I don't know if you know, but he had one eye. So he lost one one eye when I think I, I want to say it was in his early 50s. And, um, you know, when faced with the prospect of going blind, you know, uh, and people asked him, what would you do? Because, as you know, he's an avid reader, right? He loves to read. Um, He said, well, then I'll have to learn Braille. So that's something that we can take away from him. He never stopped, you know. And even with that one eye, I think he's read more than anybody, (laughs) any of us know in in our lifetimes. So it's something to... You know, his words of wisdom weren't just about investing, but also resonate to a life, um, to a life well lived, right? So it's the kind of life that you aspire to. And even this last meeting, what struck me as wonderful about the two of them, in fact, is, you know, 
how content they were with their lives. And, and they never stopped having fun. They had their jokes, uh, they had their moments of seriousness, but it was all about having fun and living up to that legacy of doing well in life through knowledge, through wisdom, and through perseverance. So it's definitely something to learn, um, some, someone we should revere, um, and the world has lost a great mind. And, you know, we'll, we'll cap it off by just sharing a quote that you shared in today's Breakfast Bites from Charlie. He said, the best armor of old age is a well-spent life preceding it. Absolutely. Well, if I can add a very uh, short one that he said, he said his children always laugh at him because they think he's a book with legs. I've always loved that quote about him because he, I, I love to read and I, I very much, you know, respect anyone who reads and he's probably one of the greatest readers of all time. So you have that. Right. So moving on, um, we got some interesting data earlier today about the GDP. Quite a surprise. You usually don't see a lot of revisions down the line. Mostly when you do see revisions, they're always lower. But this time, the G GDP second estimate came in higher at 5.15% versus 4.9% in the first estimate. So what do you make of that? You know, I think it's interesting when we were talking off mic a little bit, just highlighting some of these revisions, we saw an increase in non-residential fixed investment, an increase in state and local government spend, a decrease in consumer spending and a decrease in imports, which, as you pointed out, actually helps to boost GDP because it's something that you know takes away from overall GDP just as exports build into GDP. So it's it's interesting to see those revisions. I know we go through several more rounds of them before we get final GDP. I want to say there's at least two more uh, rounds of this. I, I think that what we're seeing, though, is that there is this resilience in the American economy. We can see it in the economic data that we're getting from the jobs market, from GDP, and from several other areas. But at the same time, there's a bit of nuance here because it's not as if everyone is doing well, but there are contingents that are doing very well. That's right. So in, in terms of looking at the GDP a little bit more closely, though, I wanted to point out something. These government spending, right? So we've been talking about government spending a lot. And if we look at the GDP and we look, drill down into it, and I'm not going to go into too much details, but you talked about non-residential fixed investment. Uh, and the interesting part about that is all the growth in fixed investments that came in the third quarter, I wouldn't say all the growth, let's say about 40% of the growth, 40 to 50% of the growth came from structures which were in related to the investment, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act. So again, we're seeing government spending actually driving that growth in the fixed investment as well. And in fact, other investments, so private investments, actually declined. So had there not been this government spending, we'd have seen a decline in terms of non-residential fixed investment growth, actually. So this is something to remember because what we've seen over the past three quarters, in fact, is a lot of government spending driving this GDP growth. Unfortunately, I don't think that this can be sustained 
And now with the new budget coming out, obviously we've all seen what's going on with the debt. We've seen that, you know, the U.S. government is on the brink of another downgrade by, you know, Modi's. And all of this relates to the budget setting and how much the government is spending. And that sort of has, I would like to say, reached its limit. Right? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think the, the positive fiscal impulse is behind us in terms of the extent in which it's going to impact the economy this much. Looking at the research of Morgan Stanley and Bank of America shows similar that most of this effect was really weighted towards the second and third quarter, particularly the third quarter. We've seen that ramp up and maybe now we're past that. And as we go into fiscal year 2024, whenever we find out what the budget actually is, one thing we know is that interest outlays are gonna be much higher and that nominal payments for everything the government does in terms of goods and services are going to be higher as well. But the actual economic impacts are likely to be contained. And in fact, it starts to raise another question here. If so much policy was front loaded towards the end of the cycle, what kind of fiscal elasticity exists to stimulate the economy if it really does slow down in 2024? That's a really good question. And uh, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. And I don't think anyone knows the answer to that. I mean, uh, if you remember, I put out a chart, I think, day before yesterday that said no one has been able to predict the GDP number correctly. Everybody's been off. Right. So even the best, the wisest and the most experienced economists don't know what's going on because a lot of this wasn't foreseen. And so when we're going into next year, we have yet another situation where, as you've rightly pointed out, where's the elasticity in government spending? And then secondly, we have um, consumer spending coming down, right? So that's the PCE as well. So on the one hand, we want to see inflation come down in terms of the PCE. And then on the other hand, this consumer spending, this destruction, uh, you know, uh, consumer spending is actually what's going to cause the GDP to come down more. And you put out a wonderful article on how to read the GDP, right? And what I saw from that lovely chart was that the majority of GDP is consumer spending, right? So that's a huge portion of it. And a change in that um, definitely will lead to a decline in the GDP. So going into quarter four, I don't think anyone should be surprised if this 5.2 comes down drastically uh, somewhere around the one, one and a half percent level. I think that's a really interesting point. And it, it also dovetails into kind of what we're seeing with Black Friday and Cyber Monday spending trends, which is that they're really strong, but also BNPL has played a larger role this time around than it ever has before. And it's suggesting that folks that either maxed out on their credit cards or don't qualify for revolving credit are splurging. And a lot of these are in the younger segments. And this is a very interesting point. And it actually gets us into our next topic, because what we've seen here is a K-shaped recovery. That is to say, the top 20%, you could say they've never done better. Large companies, similar situation. Corporate profits are doing well. Some of these large companies have financed themselves. So um, 
I would say intelligently and uh, and shrewdly that they're actually earning that interest income because they finance their longer term debt at very favorable rates. Now they have a bunch of cash parked in bills. So the Apples, the Microsofts, the Googles are earning that interest income. But on the other side of it, the small and medium sized businesses are dealing with revolvers or credit just tightening and they can't even get a loan. So you have this dichotomy between the top 20 and the bottom 50, the large businesses and the small and medium, but you also have an inequality driven by age. Boomers now, for really the first time in this country's history, that generation segment are the richest. And Gen Z are the poorest. And you could say, okay, but they haven't had time to invest and they haven't had time to build wealth. But you know what? The biggest way that American families build wealth is by buying a home. And they've been locked out of that. They haven't been able to afford a mortgage at seven plus percent at home prices that are at or near record levels in a lot of regions. So they've been locked out of that ability to form wealth. And similarly, millennials have as well. So you see those bottom age groups similarly K-shaped. The top age groups doing pretty darn well. Bottom age groups really haven't struggled this much since the way just after the Great Depression. And you can see that with Gen Z and how many are living with family as well. So Aisha, this is a really interesting phenomenon. You could even extend it out globally and say that some countries have done really well and other countries not so much. This K-shaped recovery seems to be a theme that explains some of these strange divergences we've seen where some people are saying consumers have never done better and others never done worse, and yet they can kind of both be right depending on where you're looking. No, so absolutely. <clears throat> you know, people have been talking about aggregate wealth, right? So they're looking at everything from the big picture level. So again, when we look at GDP, when we look at consumer spending, when we look at, you know, the top line numbers, we're seeing one picture, right? And on the face of it, the consumer looks strong, just as you've pointed out. However, as we like to do at Macrovisor, dig into the details, right? And we're always looking below the surface. And when we look below the surface, I think we've written uh, quite a few articles by now about the consumer not doing so well. And I think the reason that we write that is because there is a large proportion, as you rightly pointed out, the bottom of the K, who are not doing very well. And these are the people who are taking on more credit card debt. And you can see credit card debt ballooning. Unfortunately, when you have um, the lower income, these are lower income, not yet you know wealthy, as you've pointed out. Um, when these people take on debt and with interest rates going higher and higher, it becomes even more difficult for them to repay this debt. And then you have a situation now where suddenly the plug has been pulled on the stimulus. The plug has been pulled on all the support measures. So we've taken off like, you know, the SNAP payments, the excess SNAP payments, we've taken out, you know, student loans. And the burden of this is actually being borne um, more or it's hurting the lower income uh, consumer much more than it's hurting the higher income consumer because the higher income consumer, as you said, have that wealth, have that cash. All these money market funds, these huge trillions in money market funds are from people who have saved, are from people who have built that kind of wealth and can earn on that wealth. But that's not the same for everyday working people. 
who live paycheck to paycheck. You put out a statistic, what some, how many, how much percentage of the population still live paycheck to paycheck? It's about 40% that, that live paycheck to paycheck and also have less than $400 for an emergency. So that in itself is like an alarming number for people to then withstand inflation and then withstand higher rates because inflation has gone down it has decelerated, but it has not declined. So when you look at prices, um, you know, from three years ago, we're still not there. So on a one-year basis, yes, sure, inflation may not even move. And so we'll have 0% growth in inflation, but the prices remain high. And this is what's hurting people because disposable income is coming down with you know higher interest burdens and higher payments on auto loans on personal loans on you know consumer loans and um, credit card debt which is probably the biggest contingent and credit card debt has been absolutely alarming to watch in terms of the growth for the first time exceeding a trillion dollars at record high interest rates and people like to point back to you know the 1980s and say, but what about credit cards then? And the point back then is that most people couldn't get them. Now they're giving out like candy to everyone. And that same contingent that you talked about who are living paycheck to paycheck are more and more working multiple jobs and also taking out credit card debt to pay for essentials, not even frivolity, not even discretionary spend, but core essentials. And so that tells you the level of struggle that many are experiencing right now. And you wouldn't know it because the top 20%, they overshadow it. The amount of spending that we're seeing from the upper echelons of society in travel and leisure and retail in housing and otherwise, it is overshadowing the weakness in the lower parts of the economy. And this is that idea of a K-shaped recovery where an, in an aggregate measure, you can say the consumer is doing great. They have wonderful savings. They've got such wealth. But that's because you're including consumers like Elon Musk and Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and other extremely rich people that distort the measure. If you simply take all of that top 20% out and you look at the bottom 50%, you see a much different picture. You see people that are struggling with increasing delinquency rates on their car loans, on their credit card loans. You see people that are struggling to make bill payments in a timely manner. And you see people that are desperate to get multiple jobs just to have a chance at maybe making ends meet for long enough to live another month or two or three in their current lifestyle. So it's a confusing picture if we just look at top line data. But if we drill down, and this is what we're all about at Macrovisors, drilling down into these details, finding where there might be observable trends that can shape investments or can give us ideas as to where the economy might be heading, this vulnerability in the lower tier of consumers is something to keep watching, is something that continues to concern us. And as you aptly pointed out, even if inflation runs flat in terms of the rate of growth, it does not mean that we're seeing relief in prices. And if prices stay the same and disposable incomes are coming down or worse yet, people start losing jobs and wages become less competitive, then you start to see an environment where real prices are rising, even if inflation is flat. People will struggle more to make ends meet. And so you've got the 
top 20% parking money in money market funds at record $8.3 trillion in global money market fund assets, earning 4 5% yield depending on where you are. But on the other side, you've got folks who can't even scrape together enough cash to cover rent, medicine, and food and are having to make increasingly tough decisions. So when we look at that top level number, be aware there's more. There, there is always, as you like to say, Aisha, a story within the numbers. So just one more thing that I wanted to add to this conversation was about savings. So we're seeing the savings rate come down at a time when banks are actually paying you to put savings in the bank. Unfortunately, in a situation like this, we're still seeing people not saving. And the reason for that is because they're still having to pay their bills, right? And then we talk about excess savings. So during the pandemic, with all these stimulus measures and all the money given out, there was a lot of excess savings that was built up in the system. I want to say about 14.5% of disposable income was in terms of excess savings, right? And this was for most of the developed world. Since then, however, that number has declined. Um, in mid-2023, that number has declined to 10% for the U.S., and it still remains around 14% for the rest of these developed countries. Now, so the funny thing about this whole issue is that people in the U.S. are actually spending down their excess savings, and there's been some revisions to these numbers as well, and without going into too much detail, what we're seeing is that even those numbers were not correct. So this mid-year number of 10% may actually be even lower. So excess savings are coming out of the system. Debt is increasing. And therefore, what we're seeing is these lower income or mid-income earners are actually bearing the brunt of what's going on in the economy. Yeah, 100%. Very good point. You know, when we look at the top 20%, this is another issue where excess savings for them is still elevated and every other group is back to, if not below, pre-pandemic levels. Illustrating your point that people are bleeding down whatever money they accumulated to keep up with this ever-rising cost of living. So this has been a really interesting conversation going around the world, discussing what's happening with GDP with this K-shaped recovery and, of course, mourning the loss of someone who we both admire, Charlie Munger. May he rest in peace. And we'd love to hear your feedback. If you have anything that you'd like to share with us, send us an email to hello at macrovisor.com. Feel free to leave us a rating on Apple or Google, Google or whatever your favorite uh, podcasting platform is where you listen to us. And we'll be back soon to discuss more about what's going on in the economy, in the markets. So until next time, we wish you the very best. We hope you have a great week ahead. And we'll talk to you soon.